And so you're in Matthew chapter number one. I want to begin reading at verse number 18 with you. And if you're listening outside of these walls, you are listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor uh, bringing the Sunday morning message that will center around God's glory at Christmas time. And I have some things that I trust will be a blessing to you as, uh, as they were to me. I had to work through some of these thoughts and things that I'll share with you this morning. And hopefully you'll leave a little more fortified and edified uh, thinking about this whole Christmas time thing. So Matthew chapter number 1, verse number 18, we read these words. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. In other words, it happened like this. When Jesus Christ was born, these are the things that surrounded that. It happened on this wise. When Asa's mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man not, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done. You remember it happened on this wise. When Jesus Christ was born. Now all this was done. That it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying. Behold a virgin shall be with child. And shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, I trust that you're going to bless our time this morning. I've prayed for this hour. And I've prepared as well as I know how for what I'm going to share this morning. But Lord, I pray that it would not be my thoughts or my words that, that take us by our thoughts today, Lord. But that it would be your word that would help us find our anchor. This is a time that is a, it's a difficult time of year for many people. And Lord, there are many reasons that people would give as to, all the hustle and bustle and the commercialization of what's called Christmas and everything that's done from Thanksgiving until really New Year's. And our world today is a godless world, no different than it has been since the fall. And the world has really taken over this holiday time. And they go about giving gifts and celebrating, but many of them aren't even aware of the greatest gift that you've given. And Lord, I pray that through our time today, you would help us to be solid in our hearts and minds as to why we're doing what we're doing. And Lord, may we be a blessing and a witness for Christ through this next week. Thank you for the wonderful messages and song that we've heard and how they stir our heart. 
to have that question on our lips ever before us. What will you do now that you've seen Jesus? What will you do with his love? Oh, Lord, bless our time in your word, and I'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Now, what I'm going to share with you this morning, I don't claim originality for these thoughts, okay? I, I'm not dreaming this up, but I do think there's good precedent, and I want to share it with you because I know it'll be helpful to you as it was to me. As we think about Christmas time, would you agree with me that Christmas certainly has its critics? It's always had its critics. And let's think about the source of those criticisms just for a moment. Where do these criticisms arise about Christmas? Well, they come partly from the world, do they not? The world criticizes us for what we do at Christmas time. And they say, you know, it's all a bunch of uh, a show anyway and, and all the pomp that surrounds it. Some people hate Christmas because of its Christian basis. They don't want anything to do with Christ. They don't want anything to do with God. And so they just hate Christmas because they hate God. They're of the world in that way. Some people hate Christmas because, well, every time it comes around on the calendar, they have to sit down at an empty table and they see an empty chair. And maybe there's no one around. Some people don't like Christmas because it makes them lonely. Very lonely. This time of year is one of the darkest times of the year. If you look at studies that are done, more suicides happen uh, this time of year during the Christmas season than any other time of the year, at least here uh, where we are. Now, I know that might be different maybe in places on the North Face in Alaska and dark areas where they live in darkness for months and months and months out of the year. There's some different challenges that are missionaries that are up there face. But down here, think about it, the loneliness that sets in. Partly because of the memories that well, I don't want to say they come back in their cherished memories. These are memories that tend to haunt. And that's a better description, I think. We sit down and we have this loneliness that comes over us. Some hate Christmas because they feel obligated to celebrate. Well, I have to do this. Now, I've got to be a little transparent with you. I had to deal with this thought myself recently. I was driving down the road, and I forget, I was going from one place to another, and I was in the hustle and bustle thinking about, okay, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And, it, and the thought just came to me, fleeting as it was, but I had to capture it and put it under the cross right away. And I said, you know, this is, ah, why am I doing this? I'm just, you know, pulling my hair out trying to get from point A to point B to go spend money that I probably don't have to go give it to somebody that they, they probably don't even really need it. And it's, okay, why am I doing all of this? A lot of people have those same wrestlings. You know, we, we have to go and buy presents for this, or we have to do this because, well, the office is having a party, or whatever, or our class is having this, and we, you know, we've got to go find and buy and do all this stuff to be a, a good participant of those things. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not that big of a Scrooge, all right? I, I do horribly at Christmas time, trust me. I'm, I'm very keenly aware of my shortcomings on being able to give, and, and, uh, and, uh, and so thank you for those that be a blessing to me even, even when I forget different things. Schedules. I mean, how disruptive does our schedule become? Trying to chase these things around and, and do all these things at Christmas time. You can see some people, they just don't like this. Like, okay, I'd be glad when January's here because this time will finally be over. We'll have all of the calendar cleared up from this and we can move on with life. Maybe I'm the only one that feels that way, but criticisms do come from the world. They do, don't they? I've named some of them. You could name more, I'm sure. But I think those are some of the bigger ones. 
all of the interruption, all of the obligation, all of the, why are we doing what we're doing, okay? Criticisms also partly come because of non-Christian religions. I just encompassed the whole gamut, didn't I? We don't have time to go through every one of them, but let me name some big ones. Jews, Jewish people, our Jewish friends, sometimes they resent Christmas. They do. I mean, we have to be honest. We don't want to be unkind. And I'm, not, I'm not being unkind to them. I'm just pointing out the fact that many of them resent what we're doing here and calling it Christmas because it reminds them of what Christians tend to think about the Old Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but I love my Old Testament. And we just read portions that drew my mind back to the Old Testament in our scripture reading and all the covenantal promises that now, you know, Israel is seeing all these things fulfilled. See, not everyone has that fullness of understanding of the scriptures and how Christians approach the Old Testament sometimes can be rather offensive to our Jewish friends. It also brings to light the fact that, well, maybe they went wrong regarding Messiah. And so it could rub them that way too. Okay, well, we've got to deal with this again. Here it comes back around. They're busy celebrating Hanukkah and the Festival of Lights and the things that surround that. And now they have to deal with the fact that maybe, just perhaps, they missed Messiah when he came. That thought has to be in some of their minds occasionally when they're confronted with it. Maybe not all of them. Well, that's our Jewish friends. What about those who claim the Muslim faith? Islam. What do they think about Christmas? You can answer that probably better than I can. If they're ever given control over a nation, you know the first, one of the first things they're going to do? They will eradicate Christmas completely. It's happened before. I guarantee you if they have the opportunity, they'll do it every chance they get. They resent, I mean, many of them resent the very teaching that we can be saved by Jesus Christ's vicarious death for us on Calvary. Substitutionary atonement. They resent the fact that all you have to do is believe on him and you can be saved. All right, so we've dealt with partly these criticisms coming from those of the world, uh, non-Christian religions. Now let's consider those that would partly come from Christians. I think this is tactful because we start with a broad spectrum and now we're going to get a little closer to home. You're not going to escape, trust me. We all have to deal with this. Many Christians will point out the fact that Christmas derived largely from Roman Catholicism. Now we're a Baptist church and so we celebrate Christmas but you need to understand, by saying the very word Christmas, you as a Baptist harken back to Roman Catholic teachings and doctrines. Why do I say that? Because the very word Christmas comes from Christ's Mass. Christmas. Roman Catholics make so much of Christmas, many Christians say, you know, it's a sufficient reason not to observe it. Some go that far. No, I, I don't. I think we should honor about Christmas, and I'll share some things with you in a moment about how we can do that. You know, Christians are, these kind of Christians are quick to point out that, I've actually done this in the past, well, I don't even believe Jesus was born in December. I don't know how many of you agree with me on that. I can't go to chapter and verse to prove 
you know, Jesus was born at this time. But I actually believe he was born closer to our springtime, and we should be celebrating his birth closely to when we celebrate his resurrection. That's just my personal conviction. Again, I'm not dogmatic about it. And so how did this December thing get on our calendar? Well, there's a big mess behind all that, and I don't have time to, to unpack all of that for you here in this message. There's no biblical suggestion, though, that, that we should celebrate Jesus' birth. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt celebrate Jesus' birth. You won't find a verse that says that. We do read passages like we read. It says, now when he was born, it happened like this. And so we have these passages that we go through that show us all that Christ did. But there's no mandate, there's no scriptural obligation that we even have to remember his birth. But I think it's good that we do. And we should. So don't get ahead of me and say, Pastor said we should celebrate Christmas. I didn't say that. The other argument from many Christians, and I think, you know, if I haven't gotten you by now, this is where you might begin to agree with me. How commercialized has Christmas become? How has it impacted your pocketbook? I don't know about you, but it's impacted mine already. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be good and give gifts and those things, but why are we doing it? Christmas has become so commercialized. It reminds me of when I took a trip to Israel. I was privileged to do that. And I went over there and I saw that, man, if there's anybody that knows how to market the name of Jesus, those people do. I mean, you got Jesus everywhere on this and everywhere on that. And if they can sell it by putting Jesus' name on it, it doesn't matter if it's authentic or genuine or not. They're going to put Jesus on there and sell it to you because they want your money. They're really good at doing it. Same thing that we have experienced here. You see, people do studies and they realize what sells and when they can make money, they'll go after that. The bottom dollar has become so commercialized. I mean, one person said it like this, people buy presents that people don't want or need. We sometimes buy things for people we don't like. I don't know about you. I like everybody. I don't know what he's talking about. Someone said, you know, we, this is what he said, quote, we spend money we don't have for people we don't like on presents they don't need. That's the commercialization of Christmas in a nutshell. Now, I don't know. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I buy things for people I don't like because I, I, I tend to like most everybody, I think. But some add to that and they say, Jesus came to bring peace on earth. Now, we're talking about arguments from Christians, criticisms from Christians about this whole mess of Christmas time. Jesus came to bring peace on earth, but that peace, you don't find that in many places. And I just make a little theological side comment. The peace that Jesus is coming to bring is going to occur when he rules from the throne of David. And we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. And so if we start looking for peace where we shouldn't, we might get our wires crossed up and become very discouraged. I think many Christians, because of their perspective theologically, don't understand that. So, back on target. We, we want this to be a peaceful time, but when you look around, how much peace really is there, well, you can't find it in many places. And so this means, you know, Jesus, he said he was going to come to bring, this is their argument, okay, I'm talking about Christians who believe like this. They say, well, he said he was going to come and bring peace, and he didn't, so therefore his coming was false. That's the end of the argument for them. Why should we celebrate such a date when he's supposed to be the Prince of Peace? Many people, I mean, they, how, how have we missed sometimes Seeing the point and seeing the fact of one of, well, I'm just going to say it this way, the greatest event 
that has happened in human history happened two millennium ago. Two thousand years ago. A millennium is a thousand years. We are two thousand, I don't want to get specific on the math because I'm terrible at math, but it's 2019 right now. If Jesus was born maybe 4 AD, we have to adjust our dates on our calendars and all that, so we're not dogmatic about dates, but 2,000 years ago, the greatest thing that could have ever happened to mankind occurred in that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He was manifested. Now, this isn't some, you know, Twas the Night Before Christmas poem that we're basing this on. We have the best and highest authorities to go to to validate why we believe what we believe. It's, it's been proven. It will uphold in any court that you want to put it in. How many lawyers and, and attorneys have gone to the Bible to try to disprove it and looked at it and said, the evidence that's presented here will stand up in any court. And they, they come to Christ because they put it together and say, this, these are many infallible proofs. Not fairy tales, not was the night before Christmas, St. Nick poems. These are an infallible proof. And so, Jesus Christ came. When do we celebrate that? When do we celebrate the millennium of his coming, if you will? Well, one writer said it should have been back in 1996 because you make the date adjustment for AD 4 and all that. And so we, you know, really 2000, Y2K should have happened in 1996. Okay, whatever. So here's a question. As we continue these thoughts, bottom line, we've, got, we've dealt with criticisms from the world, criticisms from non-Christian religions, criticisms from Christians themselves about why are we doing all of this anyway? The bottom line question of it all that we have to answer and know for ourselves, does Christmas glorify God? Isn't that what we're concerned about most? Does it bring glory to God? We just sang, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace be will for me. Does it bring glory to God? Is God glorified when we celebrate the birth of his son? I think the answer is going to depend on how and why we are celebrating the birth of his son. Is God glorified by non-Christians celebrating Christmas? When non-Christian Christians get caught up in the hustle and bustle of celebrating Christ's Mass, is God glorified in that? Is God glorified in the commercialization of what's called Christmas today? I mean, it, Halloween wasn't over; it wasn't even over, and we're walking through the stores, and everybody's got their Christmas shelves already on display. How commercialized does it become? Is God glorified in commercializing it that way? Well. There, there are other questions. Okay, so then as a Christian, Pastor, what are you saying? Am I better off just to ignore Christmas altogether and stick my head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening? And when I walk down the streets and hear all the Christmas carols going over the airwaves and everything, I just, you know, move on about my, okay, Scrooge. Okay, another question. Does the actual date of Jesus' birth, does it determine one way or the other whether his birth is honored? I mean, what if I wanted to celebrate and have a birthday party for Jesus in April? I don't know. Pick a date. 
It's not given. We're not told specifically when he was born. Another question. Are Christians who do not celebrate Christmas, you know, those that are more spiritually enlightened, perhaps, are they more spiritual than me for getting caught up in all of this? Have I missed something somewhere along the way? Here's another valid one, I think, for where we are as Americans in this day and time in our history. Think about the families of our nation, what we have called the family unit. Think about how that has come under attack in our day. Why would we want to do things that would take away from family by saying, okay, we're just not going to do Christmas? Are we, are we better off to just stop coming together as families? This generation has missed the boat on what that whole thing is about anyway, and many of them don't even know how to act when they come to family gatherings anyway because they just sit over there on a smartphone or in their screen you know, while everybody else is doing their stuff and they can't get off Facebook and Facebook and whatever you want to call it. Well, should we, should we stop coming together? Since everything is under attack, we just kind of turn it over. Do we, um, do we just turn it over to the pagans because they've commercialized it and just say, okay, let them have their Santa Claus time and call that Christmas and whatever they want to do and we'll just advocate. We're just not going to fight for it anymore. We're not going to stand up and say Merry Christmas to people when they tell us Happy Holidays and those kind of things. I appreciate when people who are working for someone else tell me Merry Christmas first. I don't know about you, but I do note those things and politely you know, respond to them in kind. And many times if they tell me Happy Holidays first, I will just adamantly say Merry Christmas. <laughs> now I know I just said Christ Mass, but they understand what I meant. Celebrating Christmas 2,000 years ago, when we as God's people make a big to-do about this, do we not point to Jesus in some way, shape, or form? And we see the, the slogans that go around, keep Christ in Christmas and focus on the Savior. Does it not open an opportunity to maybe talk about Jesus in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise? So there are things that we could, we could talk about. Does not the celebration of Christmas make a statement of the fact that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came 2,000 years ago? And we are telling the world again, we believe that he came the first time, that it was God in the flesh. I don't know about you, but I, I think it could be a good thing to challenge our Jewish friends in a good way and to challenge our Muslim, uh, our Muslim companions to think about the fact that, hey, this is something you have to deal with. To think through in your belief system, is it possible you missed Messiah as a Jewish friend? Is it possible that you... You misappropriated some things, and, and that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that you cling so closely to in your Torah. Could you have missed it? I think it's good that we not let that die out, that they consider coming back to that. Now, let me say also that as Gentiles, we have an obligation to witness to our Jewish friends and to help them see the truth so that the scales can fall off of their eyes just like it did for the Apostle Paul. Now, I know right there they've written me off, and, and they'll call me a, a traitor and Everything because they, they did that to Paul. And you have to be you have to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And then what about our Muslim friends or, or those of another faith? Is it not good that we stand firm on what the Bible says about Jesus' coming? I think it is good that we do that. That they have a reckoning with that, knowing full well that that everything about Christmas, the origins of it, deals with the birth of this man called Jesus. And who he is. 
So why would a message like this be so vitally important? Well, namely, the things that we've already addressed and the things that we've already gotten you thinking about. But any investigation into what we do as Christians can be edifying if we'll let it, if we'll dig a little deeper. It'll also help us become more grounded as we have opportunities to witness to our non-Christian family and friends. And we can use it as an opportunity when we get to our gatherings to be a little firmly, a little more firmly grounded in why we're doing what we're doing and not get caught up in all of the mess and, and not let them stereotype us as you know, all those things that the world says Christmas is commercialized and all of that. We can remain harmless in that effect and leave the door open to be able to say, well, let's think about what it really means. You know, maybe your family does like ours. You read a portion of Luke chapter 2 where you read a different Christmas passage and then you exchange gifts. One of the things we do is we celebrate the birthday of Jesus by having birthday cake and singing happy birthday and giving ourselves to him a fresh new every year. And that never gets old to me. That never gets tired to me. And it also has opened opportunities for us as a family to explain to people why we do what we do. Why are you guys doing that? Why? Well, let me tell you. It's because of who Jesus is. There's an inseparable connection between the glory of God and what we know as Christmas. You cannot separate the connection. And that's why I challenge you with my thought there. God's glory in Christmas. Where is it? It's not in the commercialization of it. It's not in the arguments that the world you know, brings about why we do what we do. Where do we find the glory of God in Christmas? When Jesus Christ came, 2,000 years ago, the greatest thing that could have ever happened to us in human history occurred. The coming of the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, born of a virgin. We read that by Matthew. Born, conceived of the Holy Ghost. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Thank you, Charles Wesley. We need to ask as honestly as possible, as openly as we can, is there not a way forward for us as Christians, true, you know, just God-loving Christians that love Jesus, is there not a way forward through this that we can celebrate Christmas together and not get tangled up in all of the mess and just love Jesus with everything we have? Of course there is. Can we truly glorify God through Christmas time? Let's look first off this morning at the birth of Jesus and the connection that has to the glory of God. Let me give you some observations regarding the glory of God. If we're going to do a thorough study of God's glory, we have to start with the Old Testament. And I will take you to an Old Testament word, a Hebrew word, kavod. Kavod is translated glory. When we understand the word behind it, we might understand better what putting glory to God means when we're talking about it at Christmas time. And so the word kavod translates glory. The word literally means heaviness, weightiness. And we sometimes, you know, maybe we'll talk about it this way today. We'll say, you know, that person really knows how to throw their weight around. Because of their position, because of their stature. Well, what we're saying is they've got a weight to them that they know how to use. That's the sense, if you will, behind the word glory. 
the general idea of kavod. God, in his character, in his essence, in his quality, God is of the highest stature. He is, I mean, I'll just put it this way, he is the weightiest of the weighty. There is none mightier. He is the El Elyon. He is the Almighty. He is the Omnipotent. He is the all-powerful God. That means he has some weight about him. He has a certain glory that none can compare with. He is transcendent. And we think about his glory in the Hebrew word kavod, we think of that weightiness that our God has. If we were to go to the New Testament, we would do different word studies, and we would study words like doxa. And doxa is translated glory, but the flavor of this word, doxa, carries with it the idea of glory or praise. Praise. Now, how do we hear the words praise throughout our choir and their singing? Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I'm going to be turning to some verses, and I would encourage you to keep up with me as much as you can so that you can see the verses I'm going to reference as we look at glory as connected to Christ's birth. Doxa. We're looking at the word doxa. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 14 refers to the praise of his glory. Praise. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And note the last phrase. Unto the praise of his glory. Glory connected with praise. The epinos here translates as praise. And then you have doxa as glory. Blessing. Blessing is also a translation of doxa. We bless the Lord. We praise the Lord. Doxa comes from a root word that means an opinion. That's the root understanding of it. An opinion. And so what opinion do you have? I praise God. I bless Him. The doxa, the glory of God, if you will, the praise of God is not only the praise, but also the opinion of God. What do we think about Him? How does it, how does it impact our mind towards Him? And when we think about the will of God being insepar inseparable from the glory of God, the doxa of God, for the context of Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 14, if we read the rest of the verses around it, verses 11 and 12 in particular, we find out there is a purpose that God has. He's weighty, but he also is working. He has a purpose. And we read, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. That's through Jesus. Right? Without the birth of Christ, without Jesus coming to be born, we don't have any hope of this inheritance that Paul writes about. We have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him. I don't want that word predestinated to throw you off. Okay, predestinated just means predetermined beforehand. And it doesn't mean that it's an election to heaven or hell like the Calvinists say. We're predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. God already knew how this was all going to work out ahead of time. And the plan of redemption includes that we be conformed to the image of Jesus if we come by faith through him. We're going to have that image of Adam erased, defaced, as Heart the Herald Angels sing. And we, as states, excuse me, saints, Heart the Herald, you can see why I made that mistake, right? The content there. 
the context. Predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Whose will is it? That we should be to the praise of his glory. Do you see praise and glory connected there again? Who first trusted in Christ. Thank God we can praise him. So now let's take the Old Testament idea and the New Testament idea. The weightiness, the heaviness, if you will. And let's take the idea of praise and blessedness and let's mesh them together in our understanding of glory as English speakers. What do we mean by glory? Doxa. Not only the praise, but the opinion of God. When we put them together, this shows us the dignity of God's will. It reveals to us the praise of his will. It was his will that a young Hebrew girl, an Israelite young lady, who was betrothed to a man, would be visited by an angel and given a message that she would bring forth the son when she hadn't known a man. That being a virgin, she should conceive and bring forth a man-child. And that that man-child should have a designated name. That Joseph, it was revealed to him that this child would be named Jesus. So we praise the will of God in intervening on behalf of fallen mankind. And we praise his will. And that when it's done on earth as it is in heaven, we can give God glory. There is none higher. So when we combine kavod with, with doxa, we come up with an understanding that suggests God's will has a certain dignity about it. And we praise that when we recognize his will being accomplished in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. Kavod, however, back to this Old Testament word glory, that's often also connected with light and with brightness. Now, button your chin strap. We're getting into the portion here where we're going to be looking at some verses, and I, I want you to turn and look at them with me if you would. We're talking about this being connected with light, glory being connected with light, and brightness. So here we go. Are you ready? Isaiah prophesied that the glory of God would come to Zion. Isaiah chapter 60. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. I'm just going to read the scripture and let the scripture speak for itself. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord, that's Jehovah, all caps, is risen upon thee. For, behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord, Jehovah, shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The glory of the Lord prophesied when the Lord would come to Zion, his brightness would be seen, and those that sit in darkness would be drawn to that light. The glory of the Lord making an appearance where it can be visible. A certain light accompanies that. You know, this would be the Hebrew concept of 
Shekinah, the Shekinah glory that emerged in ancient Israel, that readily comes to mind. The glory, we see it associated in the Old Testament. We see it when we talk about that cloud that went with Israel. When we talk about that smoke, that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire, we see God's glory associated with that. Exodus chapter 16 and verse number 10. If you read that verse, you'll read these words. Exodus chapter 16, verse number 10. And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jehovah, appeared where? In the cloud. It appeared in the cloud. The first hint we have of this is right after in Egypt, when we have the, the details given of the Passover, you're in Exodus, look at chapter 14. And I'll read verses 19 to 20. The angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel and it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that none came not near the other all the night. What did we just read about? This cloud came, and it made darkness, it made confusion, and it made it hard for the Egyptians to find where they were going, but for the Israelites, they could see clear as day. I think the glory of God has that effect on people even today. That for some, because they have not ears to hear, they've not been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they're still of their natural affections, they cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can they know them. They're blinded. And we pray and we witness so that those scales of blindness would fall off, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, is how Paul wrote it. The devil has them blinded. And so we see this phenomenon of the light with Israel appearing at the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where God would dwell with, with Israel. Exodus, you're in Exodus, turn to 33. Exodus chapter 33, and I read verse number 9, we read these words. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, that tent of meeting, that dwelling place where God would dwell with man, the cloudy pillar, what was it? The cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And watch this. Jehovah, the Lord, talked with Moses. Here comes the cloud, and Moses gets to talk with Jehovah. What does that tell us? He was there. Jehovah was there. When we fast forward through Israel's history, and we come to the time of Solomon, and the ark has been brought into the temple, we see these words, 1 Kings chapter 8. I read in verses 10 through 11, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. They kind of pushed them out. There's no room there for them. Because the cloud is there. For the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jehovah had filled the house of the Lord. Now hold on with me. We're going somewhere. 
the coming of Messiah was prophesied and associated with the glory of God being revealed. These are promises that were given in the Old Testament. Isaiah, back to chapter number 40, and I read this in verse number 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken. The birth of Christ as Messiah is inseparably connected with the idea of the glory of God. The Lord would suddenly come into his temple. Malachi told us that in Malachi 3.3. Behold, and there's some results that will happen because of this. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. We read about that with John the Baptist in our scripture reading. The Lord would suddenly come into his temple. When that happened, some things would occur. There would be conviction of sin. It would have, it would have the same effect on them that it had upon Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. That's the kind of impact it would have. Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek, that's Adonai, the Lord whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, that is Jehovah of armies, Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord, that's Jehovah there, all caps Lord, and offering in righteousness. What's going to happen when the Lord suddenly comes to his temple? There's going to be some refining, some purging. There's going to be conviction of sin. We're going to come face to face with that and say, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the next time you read the Christmas passage and you think about the baby, think about the King. And maybe you'll feel a little bit more like Isaiah did. And maybe through this Christmas time, you might be able to step back and realize the glory of God to the point that you say, Lord, I am, I am nothing like you. Refine me. Mold me. Lord, I humble myself to think that you would even come. In a word, if we were to just take one word to describe all of God's attributes, May I suggest to you that we should summarize that in the word glory? Think about the attributes of God. Omnipotence. What does that mean? What is God's omnipotence? He is all-powerful. Omniscient. His omniscience. What does that mean? He is all-knowing. Omnipresence. What does that mean? He is everywhere. His holiness. Some of these are communicable, some of these are non-communicable. But His holiness, His justice, His wrath, that is an attribute of God. His love, His mercy, His truth, His wisdom. Can I just take all of those and pack them down and give you a word? Glory. Think about 
about Christmas time and all the hustle and bustle, the glory of God says it all. Stephen related it this way in Acts chapter 7, verse number 2, when he was preaching to the elders of his day, those religious leaders, he referred to the glory of God. In Acts chapter 7, verse number 2, he said, Men, brethren, fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Haran. Hey, let me remind you of something. Remember that story that we always read about our father Abraham? Well, do you remember how God showed up to him in his glory? This same man who drew their mind back to Abraham in God's glory, appearing to him before he left Haran, the same man, at the end of his message, when they were stoning him to death for what he preached about righteousness, look at his words in verse 55 of Acts chapter 7. And he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly to heaven, into heaven, and saw what? Mm, give me the verse. He saw the glory of God. And Jesus very particular in the way it's worded, but specific. Yes, he did see Jesus. But it says just before that, he saw the glory of God and Jesus. Not sitting, you know the account. He was standing at that point, at the right hand of God, watching as Stephen laid down his life in preaching the truth and righteousness of God's glory. He beheld God's glory, and then there's Jesus. That's powerful. So what happened when Jesus was born? Those 2,000 plus years ago. What happened when Jesus was born? Prophecy was fulfilled. This is inarguable. It, it was blatantly and, and clearly revealed before all who would give it consideration, they could understand this. A virgin conceived. And I should hear some amens on that. It wasn't just a young lady in the Hebrew language. The word can be translated both ways, but it, it should be rendered a virgin conceived. Isaiah 7, 14, this was the prophecy, right? Don't let these become old. We hear these verses over and over and over again. But this is the truth of what happened when Jesus was born. A virgin conceived. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This was fulfilled I won't go to read it for sake of time, but Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, that we read when we began. There were some things that apparently didn't line up that actually happened when Jesus Christ was born. These things don't make sense, but when we consider it, we see how they came together. Micah chapter 5, verse number 2. These are Christmas verses, right? But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, house of bread is what Bethlehem means. Though thou be little among thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now that, those words make me think of Melchizedek. I don't know about you, but that just reminds me of who Melchizedek was. This was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. We read in verses 5 and 6, They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Now Bethlehem and the land of Judah are... Not the least among the princes of Jews, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Prophecy was fulfilled. We could go to other places. 
We can compare Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 alongside of that and see how prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus Christ was born. The rod of Jesse. We can turn over and see how the king came. The kings, if you will, those, those magi, they came to worship. Matthew chapter 2, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Because Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 60, verse number 3, the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. So when those magi came from the east, that was a direct fulfillment of what Isaiah said would happen. Those who are in power, so what happened when Jesus was born? Prophecy was fulfilled. Those who were in power were completely bypassed. God just kind of took over, if you will. I love looking at that and seeing how it fell out. We talk about the dignity of God's will. Think about how he accomplished his purpose. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19 said this, And he said, I will make all my goodness to pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then this was right after Moses had asked him in Exodus 33, 18, he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Did you get it? Moses said, I'm begging you, Lord, show me your glory. He said, you want to see my glory? It's when I give mercy to him my will, and when I move and my will is accomplished, that's when you see my glory. God passed by. Who did he pass by? He passed by Herod. He passed by the chief priests, Matthew 2, verse 4. He passed by the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. God just passed right by. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes together, of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. That's Herod. The teachers of the law. Who did he gather? The chief priests and the scribes. He got them all together, and here the glory of the Lord just goes right before them. All Jerusalem is mentioned in Matthew 2, verse 3. Herod the king had heard these things. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You see, this wasn't something that happened in a closet somewhere. Who else got passed by, if you will? Caesar Augustus. And it came to pass, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 of those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Cyrenius, he was governor of Syria, so he would be in that list of God's glory passing. The people of Nazareth, the people of Bethlehem, Luke chapter 2, verse number 4, God's glory passing before them. Those who were at the inn in Bethlehem, you know, there's no room in the inn for him. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she, bore, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. Everybody in that inn, the glory of God passed right before them. Those who were let in on the event. Who knew what was happening? Angels. They revealed it to the shepherds. They revealed it to Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Magi knew. The wise men knew. It all began on this, what Zechariah prophesied as a day of small things. A day of small things. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro in the whole earth. Prophecy was fulfilled. 
that Jesus Christ was born. The glory of God was manifested when Jesus Christ was born. Well, I must listen. I've taken more time from you than I should this morning, and you've been kind to listen. But what's the climax of it all? The celebration. Why do we do what we do around Christmas time? The climax of it all, in the revelation of the will of God being done, intervening in mankind, happened when all of this was done to our key word, glory, to the glory of God. Luke chapter 2, verse number 14. They sang it earlier, so let's read it. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. All of the above, and things that I wasn't even able to get to this morning, all of that points to the glory of God. The manifestation of that glory came when Jesus Christ was born. And all of what we have just talked about means that we as Christians must live in a way that also brings glory to God. So then I close with these thoughts. Can we do that during Christmas time? When everything is so commercialized and the world is, is arguing against it, and even Christians have gotten on the bandwagon of saying, why should we even try? I mean, we should just... You know, abdicate it to the pagans and let them have their Santa Claus. We shouldn't even worry about Christmas time. Just don't make a big deal about it. Let's just stick our head in the sand. Let's just move on. I mean, it'll be easier. He wasn't even born this time of year. Let's just... Can we bring glory to God? Behind this possibility is the principle that I would leave with you, that grace is abounding. Grace is abounding. Even if Christmas has pagan origins. And even if it does, cannot God overrule that? Didn't he do that when he passed by Herod and Cyrenius and Caesar Augustus and, and all of the things that were going on to try to stop his will? Cannot God override what pagans will do to try to hijack Christmas? Yeah, he, he can overrule that. He makes even the wrath of men to praise him. Psalm 76, verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. God can get glory out of anything. If we'll work to see that happen, we'll be part of his plan. Think about redemption in and of itself. The fact that Jesus Christ came to save us. Does that not have its roots in the fall of man to begin with? So should we just give up on this whole idea of redemption because, well, man messed it up anyway? It's the same kind of argument that we apply to Christmas when we say the pagans, you know, took it over, or these people don't like it when we do this, and these people don't like it when we do that. Well, I mean, same argument with the fall. Paul said this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, say it with me, grace did much more abound. Let's point people to the grace of God that might help them behold a little bit more of His glory. All the things that we've talked about this morning can help you bring glory to God, understanding His weightiness, understanding His praise, and that He intervened, intervened on our behalf. How then can we do this? We can do this when we bring honor to the birth of Jesus. So sometime through the Christmas present exchanges and everything you have going on, bring glory, bring honor to the fact that Jesus Christ was born. That will help you glorify God at Christmas. Remind other people 
of the whole reason for the season. Don't get tired of doing that. Keep it centered around Christ. Take some people who maybe are non-Christian and they're your friends, take them to church services and anywhere that you can go where God's word will be preached. Bring them along with you so that they can hear and, and experience and, and know the teachings about the birth of Christ. When we worship and we give thanks, the way that it all happened and how God, God intervened, remember why Jesus came. All of these things are important. He was born to be our Savior. His name was called Jesus because he would save us from our sins. Above all this Christmas time. I know, you checked out on me a few minutes ago. It's all right. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be done here in a moment, but just hold on. Above all this Christmas time, remember the cross. He was born to die. His death explained why he is called Savior. Because he saves his people from their sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Those songs that we sing, the great Christmas carols, don't just sing them. Think about them. Let the words pour through you. Meditate on them. Especially songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know how it was first written was Hark, the, hark, hark How All the Welkin uh, sings. It's the welkin is the heaven sing. Hark how old the welkin sing. Well, we don't use the word welkin anymore, but it means the heaven. And uh, when you think about the truth that's in those songs, let that let that unfold God's brilliance before you, His glory, His light. Let it be seen in those Christmas carols. Remember, as you go through these days, remember those who are lonely, those who maybe have an empty chair at their table, those who are really battling those haunting memories that might come back. Remember them. Visit and, and be a friend. Be thankful for family and friends. When you receive something from someone, make, make your thoughts go towards God and Him giving the greatest gift that you could have ever received. Giving His Son. So when you receive something, say, thank you, but then also thank you, Lord, because it's a picture of what you gave in Jesus. So yes, Christmas has its critics. It has its critics from within the church. It has its critics from without. Followers of other religions. But an annual festivity time, if you will, an annual time where we all get together and celebrate the birth of Christ, can that bring glory to God? Yes. And we should let it. God's glory was manifest and it is inseparable from the birth of Jesus. And so let's bring people to that glory as we gather around and as we go forth as his witnesses. And let's look for those opportunities of evangelization that will present itself as we help others come and find Jesus. And we present all of these things for your consideration.